Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Last week we began looking at cognizance, which is at the heart of the epistemic study of dependent co-arising. We saw that cognizance and name and form circle around each other to construct the world as we experience it. Cognizance is an adept salesman. He persuades us to buy an item of merchandise, shining, solid, durable, and ever new and indispensable. We take it home, take it out of the box and discover shoddy construction, cheap materials, ill-fitting seams. It falls apart on use, the paint peels off, But that's okay because it's barely performed its intended function anyway. Our purchase history is littered with the shards of such broken promises. Cognizance always has something to sell. It's itself an inner mental event, but offers us alluring content, something out there and more substantial than a transitory event. It presumes its content in an unrealistically favorable light as substantial, discrete, relatively fixed, existing independently, unchanging until affected by other objects, ripe for craving and appropriation. And we believe it all, for we suffer from the natural attitude. This is the presumption of naive contact. This is, in a nutshell, what cognizance does, and if it didn't do it, we would never experience an outer world as separate from us. Cognizance is a productive instrument of presumption. It objectifies. Objects out there spring into bloom everywhere we turn our attention. Cognizance presumes its content through consulting the various factors of name and form, As we've seen, name and form is an unreliable group of dunderheads, starting with vague shapes and colors, then imposing conceptualizations upon these, and then conceptualizations upon conceptualizations. Cognizance, with the support of name, quickly and quite effortlessly far overreaches what is given in form going way beyond direct experience. For instance, the perceptual field of forms turns to a front surface of a house or a dog. But that surface unfolds immediately and gratis into a three-dimensional object with back and sides, something we can walk around, and in the case of a house, we can enter it, none of which is directly apparent. On top of that, anticipations arrive of what we will see should we decide to walk around or enter the house. The result of cognizing many objects is the appearance of our outer world, so real, 
so substantial, so three-dimensional, so vivid, so pregnant with possibilities, and so immediately present, we can reach out and touch it. Objectifying in this way is the origin of contact. Recall from an earlier talk that sense contact is the coming together of I, form, and cognizance. I is how we get from form to cognizance and is therefore roughly equivalent to name. However, it turns out the cognizance is the origin of naive contact, not its product, for it adds the entire range of metaphysical presumptions that constitute the natural attitude. As Nyanananda points out, if I see a cup, cognizance is the very discrimination between seer and seen, me and cup. There can be no I see a cup prior to cognizance of the cup in the epistemic perspective. Cognizance as magic. The Buddha describes the five aggregates, kanda, that make up our experiential world with cognizance as the fifth. Form is like a massive foam and feeling but an airy bubble. Perception is like a mirage and formations a plantain tree. Cognizance is a magic show, a juggler's trick entire. This verse expresses the elusive and contingent nature of each of these factors. By the way, a plantain or banana tree is characterized as having no core or hardwood, but just layer upon layer of the same woody substance. The Buddha likens cognizance to magic in that it conjures up an experienced reality often outrageously by sleight of hand and illusion, but one which the wise are able to see through if they look carefully. He continues, Now suppose that a magician or magician's apprentice were to display a magic trick at a major intersection, and a man with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance could there be in a magic trick? In the same way, a monk sees, observes, and appropriately examines any cognizance that is past, future, or present, inner or outer, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance, for what substance would there be in cognizance? This appearance the magician creates is the content of cognizance and also the object of naive contact. This is the objective perspective. Sneaking behind the stage to discover his tricks is the practitioner's epistemic perspective. Understanding the constructedness of the appearance, we recognize that it is not substantial. So it is with all that we cognize. A magician creates an imaginary world through props and sleights of hand, but a more modern example makes his point perhaps as vividly. 
A television is a physical object with a flat screen and a speaker. When it's turned on, pixels of changing colors dance around on the screen and the speaker vibrates audibly, producing forms and sounds. Name apprehends this, but cognizance does not stop there. We are suddenly transported into another time and place in which John Wayne is a gunslinger whose inner goodness is brought out by a young Quaker woman who cares for him as he recovers from a gunshot wound. And John Wayne is more than a shape on the screen. He's three-dimensional with emotions and plans, and even now standing there obscured by his horse while we experience his presence. We cry and we laugh in empathy with the characters present in this other time and place. We see through the screen and experience something quite different from forms and sounds. Cognizance has conjured up a whole alternate world simply as an interpretation of flickering pixels and audible vibrations. It's then transported us there where we may ever forget occasionally that we are at the same time sitting in front of a television munching popcorn. It seems so real. It doesn't matter that this alternate world does not really exist. It becomes part of our experience, and we are conscious of things in that world way out there, just as we can be conscious of the popcorn in our mouths. Whoa, how did this all happen? A substantial level of content and realism seems to have arisen that is entirely out of place in our everyday world. Such is the creative, magical power of cognizance to turn shapes, colors, and sound waves into a remote time, place, and situation to place us there as an invisible witness and to make it seem so real, an hallucination, but an oddly coherent one. Perhaps even more remarkably, we can sit with an open book on our lap, we perceive directly simple ink letters on paper and suddenly see through the pages into Victorian London, into the adventures of Oliver Twist, the artful Dodger and Fagin. Even that seems real. Cognizance is the master of illusion. Cognizance is also the master of many worlds. Suppose sounds impinge on the world. It's music. What we become conscious of, as a result, varies in some remarkable ways with small shifts in attention. At first, we might be cognizant of a loudspeaker. We objectify the loudspeaker as there in the corner and as producing sound. But we might instead hear through the speaker and be cognizant of an entire orchestra. Though we are in a rather small room, the orchestra includes many people and their various instruments producing the sound as we clearly cognize the individual instruments, brass, strings, and percussion. But further, we can hear through the orchestra to become cognizant of the music itself, the melody, rhythm, and harmony, the overall temporal structure of the composition, its aesthetic qualities, evocative of certain emotional states, completely abstracted from any spatial dimension. 
Notice that we seem to presume multiple worlds of different sizes and shapes, each with a kind of internal coherence and each with a claim to being reality in some however obscure sense. Simple shifts in attention create radically new experiences, slipping from an interior reality into a more exterior reality and back again. Trying to sort out what is inner and outer in these various experiences can be dizzying. But that is what cognizance does all day, every day. It produces worlds and convinces us they are real. Contact and objectification are part and parcel of the phenomenological essence of cognizance. It's magic. As long as we cognize, we're producing potentially alluring content for feeling, for craving, and for appropriation, and thereby entangling ourselves into the human pathology, into sangsara, into this massive suffering. We can find relief either by limiting cognizance through controlling its conditions or by bringing about its cessation through insight into the insubstantiality of what it produces. Because cognizance is so cross-entangled, there are a number of choke points involving conditioning or encouraging factors that can be exploited to limit the effects of cognizance. Most importantly is the role of attention, which effectively controls the site to which cognizance descends and can thereby limit its opportunities for descent and growth. This makes wise attention particularly important. Bhikkhus, what one intends and what one plans and whatever one has a tendency towards, this becomes a basis for the maintenance of cognizance. When there is a basis, there is a support for the establishing of cognizance. When cognizance is established and has come to growth, there is the production of future renewed existence. Recall from earlier talks that a proliferation of cognition commonly begins at feeling and then spins out of control and that a general craving for becoming produces a hunger for the nutriment of contact, mental activity, and cognizance that fuel growth. This whole cross-entangled process can be disrupted through wise attention at this choke point, so that cognizance has no opportunity to descend. The Buddha stresses the importance of limiting cognizance in this way. This Dhamma is for one who likes and delights in non-proliferation and not for one who likes and delights in proliferation. An effective use of wise attention that most listeners will be familiar with is to stabilize the mind on the breath. Watching or listening to provocative media content or multitasking is unwise attention. Similarly, recall that cross-entangled craving provides moisture to encourage the growth of cognizance. Any practice that reduces craving or appropriation or develops dispassion will also limit the available moisture in which cognizance flourishes. Ethical practices are particularly important here. Less growth reduces the mass of samsaric snarl. 
In order to bring about the cessation of cognizance, our job as practitioners is to learn to assume the epistemic perspective, to become the man with good eyesight who discovers the magician's tricks, to understand cognizance as conditioned and constructed, for the illusion gets us into trouble, and finally to let go of the illusion. Nyanananda states that penetration into the conditioned nature of cognizance is like storming the citadel of the illusory self. Insight into the presumptive nature of cognizance is of utmost benefit in untangling the tangle. This is to see how the magic show a juggler's trick entire actually works, to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it, until cognizance appears empty, void, without substance, for what substance could there be in cognizance? Through contemplative practice, we can see through the illusion. The result is something like this. When, when cognizance, cognizance is non-manifestive, non boundless, luminous all around, that's where earth, water, fire, and air find no sight. There, both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, their name and form are wholly destroyed. With the cessation of cognizance, this all is destroyed. The most important term for us is non-manifestive, anidasana for it suggests cognizance without content and consequently without sight of descent and without growth. For instance, the Buddha uses a simile of paint used to draw pictures in the sky, whereby the monks reply that that is impossible, for the sky is immaterial and non-manifestive. The reference to earth, water, fire, and air indicates form in the sensual field, generally the simplest sight of cognizance. Jnanananda speaks of the detached gaze of the arahant as he looks through concepts as no object as point of focus. The following is another look at non-manifestive cognizance. Notice this passage gives some insight into the understanding of geology at the time of the Buddha. Suppose, bhikkhus, there were a house or a hall with a peaked roof with windows on the northern, southern, and eastern sides. When the sun rises and a beam of light enters through a window, where would it become established? On the western wall, venerable sir. If there were no western wall, where would it become established? On the earth, venerable sir. If there were no earth, where would it become established? On the water, venerable sir. If there were no water, where would it become established? It would not become established anywhere, venerable sir. So too, bhikkhus, if there is no lust for the nutriment, edible food, contact, mental activity, cognizance, Cognizance does not become established there to come to growth. Where cognizance does not become established and come to growth, there is no descent of name and form. 